and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Stubcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Please welcome the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller, and your host, Jeff Maldron. Hey, everybody. Welcome in. It's David Summers hosting another stud cast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. And again, sending our best wishes to Jeff Maldron who we hope is back hosting this studcast very soon. You have found the only podcast on the planet, which is documenting the real story of professional wrestling. Ron Fuller and his family's wrestling history dates back over generations and includes iconic personalities like Aaron, who spent time with Ron's family and wanted to learn to wrestle. Aaron got into the ring in the Fuller family's barn on weekends near Memphis back in the late 50s and early 60s. He worked out and learned several moves and holds. Aaron would also attend wrestling events at the Coliseum in Memphis and stand unnoticed on a riser in the back of the building near the dressing rooms and watch the matches in person. Who was Aaron? He was the king of rock and roll, Elvis Aaron Presley. Now that's rock and roll history, and that is true wrestling history. Now, please welcome the originator of the Studcast and the man who changed the podcasting world with the Super Studcast. Let's step back into the ring and back into time with the storyteller, the Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Hey, how you doing, my man? Good to be with you, Dave. Um, Good to be with you, Ron. Uh, pretty nice intro there, too, man. Thank <laughs> you, you, got me, in, you got me in with some fairly recognizable uh, figures there. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and I would like to also uh, send my best wishes to Jeff as well, who's in his, uh, actually his second uh, week of chemo. And uh, we, we wish him our, our best here and, and uh, look for him to be able to come back. But uh, glad to have you with us today, Dave. And uh, we've got a pretty good show today. In fact, uh, you worked with me a couple of days ago on a Super Stud cast that actually just came out uh, yesterday on Tuesday, April 14th, 2020. Uh, and that was with uh, Jacques Rougeau about the historic uh, Canadian family, the 75 years in, in the business, the Rougeau family. And uh, I really enjoyed that one. And uh, I think you had a pretty good time, too, I guess, Dave. I, I got to tell you, Rock, uh, Jacques is, is just, he's very fascinating. The Rougeau, when you think about the Rougeau brothers, they were not the top of the card guys, but they were certainly the very important middle of the card guys. And they could certainly change a TV show or a wrestling event very quickly. But it was so interesting to just hear his candid take on so many things in the wrestling business. And he was he was just very generous with his time. Yeah, he certainly was. And uh, he's one of those young guys that started kind of in Southeastern, got his real start, won his first championship in Southeastern way back in the uh, 80s. And uh, really, really a knowledgeable kid. Uh, I call him a kid. He's not a kid anymore. Yeah, right. uh, I'm sure he's a grandfather by now, for sure. Yeah. And, but it was really great to have him on the program. And for everybody out there, I think it's one of the best uh, Super Stud casts we've done. I've already gotten some comments on it. The show just came out actually today, earlier today. And that's it. I'm already getting a lot of good comments on it. So if you get a chance, listen to that one, folks. Uh, I recommend it. So today, uh, Dave, I'm just going to jump right in. Uh, today, I, uh, we're going to start with a story that I promised everybody on the last studcast. And uh, we're going to talk about a match I had in Williamsburg, Kentucky, against Norville Austin, who was managed by General Homer Odell, obviously. And it's a pretty, <laughs> it's a different type of match. Let's just put it that way. 
Uh, in fact, the name of this episode is A Ring Full of Vomit. So I hope you <laughs> folks still stay tuned, you know, but uh, this story is uh, going to be something totally different. So then we're going to cover the week of April 16th, uh, 1976, almost exactly 44 years ago today. Uh, they had matches in Knoxville on April 16th, 76. We're going to talk about a new station that I went to to set up in Hazard, Kentucky. And uh, speaking of Kentucky, it's got a little bit to do with our learning tree question, oddly enough, today. And the uh, learning tree question uh, is basically, uh, was I ever worried about booking Norvell Austin as a heel in places like Harlan, Kentucky, and other towns down south? And what percentage of the audience in southeastern Knoxville in that Knoxville area was black? Uh, you know, a great question. And uh, obviously, I uh, just mentioned I'm setting up TV in Hazard at this point. And Harlan's only about uh, 60 miles away from Hazard. And that's in a unique part of the country up there. So, uh, and this story, uh, you know, fits kind of perfectly. The one I'm going to, I'm just going to go ahead and tell the story today about my match in Williamsburg, Kentucky in uh, 1976 with uh, my boy uh, Norvell Austin. And Homer Odell's managing him. This uh, city of Williamsburg is only about 70 miles away from where the gentleman here that asked our question of the day, the learning tree question, from Harlan, Kentucky. And uh, so we're going to, at the uh, end of the day's program, obviously we're going to get to that learning tree question. In this particular match, we're in a high school gymnasium. Uh, at this point, Southeastern is on fire. Uh, everywhere we go, everything is sold out. The, and we're sometimes going to these schools for the very first time in some of these cities. This one we'd probably been to maybe two times earlier. But this particular night, uh, it's sold out. And Norville Austin is probably uh, kind of talking about the learning tree question later. He's probably the only black person in the gym. So it's kind of an odd situation. And so when we go that night, my brother and I is riding with me. I remember we make the trip together because of something that happens afterward, actually, that makes me remember that. But Rob and I ride together on this trip, and I happened to be in the main event that night with Norvell Austin. And Norvell's not accustomed to working with me a whole lot at this point. He's been in these long programs with Butch Malone, with Ron Wright, uh, with Mike Stallings, a lot of other people uh, than, than myself, even with Rob and Jimmy. He's had quite a few tag matches with them, but He's not been in a whole lot of single matches either. So this is kind of unusual for Norvell. And uh, I remember that night having sent over what we're going to do in the matches. The referee comes back, who is Mac Murray. Mr. Mac, we call him. And uh, he, what a great guy he was. Tremendous referee. He takes over the, the end of the match, the finish. And then he comes back and he says, uh, Ron, uh, and this is probably only about 45 minutes before we're supposed to go into the ring. He says, Ron, uh, Norvell's over there eating hot dogs. <laughs> and I said, well, I hope he's prepared, right? You know, Norvell did not know how long the match was going to go. And he probably would not have had the hot dogs had he known. But anyway, <laughs> we start in the match that night. We're in the last match of the night. I want to give the people there because those crowds were so enthusiastic and so good. I wanted to give them good good length of time. I, I imagine we wrestled more than 30 minutes. But we get down to the end of the match. Homer Odell, just to describe what Homer looks like on this particular night, he's got on the normal big old black motorcycle jacket. Uh, I always thought it was to keep people from stabbing him. They would have a hard time stabbing through his motorcycle jacket. Wow. He was always afraid of heat. And uh, boy, did they have heat back in those days. That's why the buildings were full. And uh, so... He's got his helmet on. But on this night, he has a net, the old-style net on top of his helmet, which is very rare. You hardly ever saw him with the net over it. We start into the match, Norvell and I. And we have a long match, 30 minutes or more. It's pretty hot in that building. Uh, no air conditioning back in those days and a lot of those high school gyms. And we get to going pretty good, and Norvell starts to get tired. And it's pretty obvious that he's getting tired. So I would have gone probably another 10 minutes or so, but I see that he's having a problem and he's maybe not going to make it to the end of the match. So we start doing the finish. And, and when we do, there's a couple of spots in the finish in uh, which uh, 
I'm going to drop down. I'm going to leapfrog over him. I'm going to drop kick him. And uh, boy, I love drop kicking this guy because he took great bumps. We get started into the finish and he starts vomiting from his hot dog, oh. <laughs> his little hot dog, early meal there. And he starts vomiting in the ring. And so we don't stop the match. I mean, you can't do that. So I just kept doing what we're supposed to do. I shot him in the ropes and he ran over top of me and he's leaving the trail of vomit as he went by me. And and then I jump over him, which is good. Don't have to worry about it at that point. And then I drop kick him and uh, boy, he takes a tremendous bump and he never stopped vomiting for this whole little segment here. And then the next thing is he grabs me by the head and Homer jumps up on the apron of the ring. But Homer sees him vomiting, and Homer's Homer's like hesitant at this point because he knows that uh, instead of my head getting run into Homer's helmet, it's going to be Norvell's head run into his helmet. Now, Norvell's got the bushy beard. He's got stuff all in his beard at this point. Now, he's in his hair. I mean, he's a mess. And the referee having a hard time. Max having a hard time not vomiting, too, because it's pretty smelly in the ring. And mm. So Norvell's... Norvell grabs me by the hair and Homer don't want to get up on the apron. He don't want to put his head through the ropes because he knows that it's not going to be me that hits him. It's going to be Norvell. Anyway, I reverse it the last minute and I throw Norvell's head face first into Homer's helmet. (laughs) And when I do, the vomit gets into the netting on Homer's helmet. Uh And and then Homer starts to vomit (laughs) on the apron of the ring. I was like, oh my gosh, man, this is, this is, I thought I was going to, this is a sickening match. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Literally. Anyway, he starts to vomit on the, on the apron of the ring and I then grab Norvell. I've run his head in there. I just uh, basically cover him at that point. When I do the referee, now Max been able to avoid all this, but he, he gets ready to count and he, and he sticks his head kind of in there. I turn my head away from Norvell's face. And he's pretty close to it. And he starts counting. He goes one, two, and then before he counts three, he starts to vomit. (laughs) So I'm like the only one of the uh, four of us that isn't vomiting. And I end up getting out of the ring without barfing, you know, but the ring was a total mess. I look back and, I mean, Homer's out there on his knees on the floor. He's still going at it and Norvell's still vomiting and the referee's vomiting. I'm like, wow, man, I'm so glad to get this over with. And so Rob and I get in the car and we're going back to Knoxville. And up in the state of Kentucky during that time frame in the 70s, there were no liquor stores, but there were places you could get beer. And my brother liked to drink a beer on the way home. So we stop into this place and there's a couple of guys in there buying beer at the same time. We don't know that they've been to the matches, but so we're about to leave. And, uh, and one of them says to me, he goes, you know, he goes, Ron, Ron Fuller, you're, you're, you're Ron Fuller. Yeah. I know you are. He says, we, we watched you tonight, man. He goes, you know, you, you whipped that guy. You whipped, uh, you beat, uh, he, you know, he couldn't, he just kept, he was just, he was so excited. He goes, you whipped, uh, you, you beat him. He said, you beat the puke out of that guy tonight. <laughs> <laughs> So me and Rob got in the car and on the way home, that was the big laugh for the night. It was the big line of the night. You whipped the puke out of that guy tonight. (laughs) You know, that was strange back in those days because it was so hot in those gyms that uh, you wanted to get sick even without having to have the hot dogs. And I don't doubt that Norvell ever ate hot dogs again before his matches because he he certainly learned a valuable lesson from that. I certainly hope not, but... Hopefully that was the main event in the last match of the evening. Luckily, luckily okay. it was, I don't yeah. know what we would have done if it hadn't have been, you know, so, but so we know that Norvell learned a lesson about eating before the match, but I'm, I'm assuming the other guys that was just kind of reactionary based on his vomiting, causing them to vomit. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it didn't smell very good, you know, in the <laughs> ring and, uh, you know, you know how that goes. So it's pretty easy to, you get pretty close to that and you're going to have a tendency to, Maybe start going there yourself. So it was a nasty, nasty thing. You know, like I said, it was kind of a sickening match. That's for yeah. sure. I think the so, fans probably prefer the blood instead of the vomit. Oh yeah. Yes. <laughs> Easily. <laughs> uh, 
So uh, let's talk about the Knoxville card of April 16th, 1976. As I said earlier, it's almost 44 years to the day, oddly enough, from the day this match occurred. Uh, the opening match was a great one. Norvell Austin's and we talked about him. He was in the first match of the night, and he was against a young and up-and-coming star, a cousin of Jerry Stubbs, Mr. Olympia, a kid named Mike Stalling. Uh, Ron Wright returned to face again toward Tanaka, who he had wrestled two out of the last three weeks. And the week before, Tanaka had wrestled his brother and had his brother bleeding pretty bad. And Ron got in there and got involved in that match. And uh, it was a Ron Wright back against toward Tanaka again because of what Tanaka had done to his brother the week before. And for the first time, Big Butch Malone is finally going to get his shot alone with General Homer Odell. There's two main events on this card. Southeastern Tag Championship was on the line. It had two referees. And the champions, Robert Fuller and Jimmy Golden, they faced off against the superstars, which had been a little program that had been running for a couple of weeks at this point. And this one happens to be for the championship. Rob and Jimmy are the champions. And there's two referees in this match. And then I'm going to be on the same card defending my Southeastern Championship against the peanut butter man, Don Carson. But before we get to the results, talk about the TV show of the Saturday before, which was Saturday, April 10th. And it's the one that promoted this card, obviously. Uh, the show opened with a bang. Tommy Rich and DeVore Brunson were in that first match. And they'd been introduced uh, in the ring already when the superstars and Don Carson appeared in the studio. Obviously, the crowd, the crowd's waiting on those guys. They hated those dudes. And, and they were really waiting on them and also uh, Homer and his troop. The superstars were introduced, and Carson stayed ringside for a little bit there and just to annoy the fans. You know how Don was? He was always screaming, shut up, and he was always insulting people. You're ugly, you know, whatever he could say. And finally, the referee got tired of it, and he said, you got to go. You got to get away from ringside. So instead of going back to the dressing room, and he'd already been having a problem with Les Thatcher on a couple of shows, he starts going to the set. He's not supposed to be going there unless sees him coming and Les just gets up and leaves the set because he was true to his word. A couple of weeks earlier, he'd had a problem with the three of them. And he said, I'll never interview you guys again or sit at the desk with you. So he left. So Carson just went and sat down and became the commentator for the match. And so basically the TV war that would started between the superstars and Carson and Les Thatcher is still continuing. So Carson, as I said, sits down and he just starts commentating over the match. And the first five minutes of the match, the superstars made a star out of Tommy Rich. And it was because Tommy at this point was really a hardworking kid. And he was getting a lot of respect, and not only from the fans who loved him, even though he wasn't winning a lot of matches, but he was also getting respect from the heels and they wanted to make him look good. So in the first five minutes of that match, they let him do everything to the two of them. He arm-dragged them. He slammed them one after the other. I mean, he had five minutes of high spots, and then he finally tags his partner, DeVoy Brunson. But the superstars don't feel the same way about Brunson, and they took over right away, obviously. And they finished him by same hole they've been finishing a lot of matches with, their Boston Crab. And uh, they got their hands raised at the end. And Carson's still at the set, and he declared them the winners as well. And then he rushed away from the set and jumped in the ring and raised their hand just to make sure everybody realized that got as much heat as they possibly could get. And uh, after that match was over, Les returned to the set, and Robert and Jimmy joined him. They are going to watch a video that took place the night before in a match with the same guys that had just won those superstars. Uh, they began first by apologizing to Les for Carson's actions and Carson coming and taking his spot at the set. And Les handled it really politely, and he threw in something there that didn't seem to be mean much, but it's going to later on. He said something about, well, it's okay, guys, because something's going to be done about it really soon. And, uh, you know, then the Rob and Jimmy, they, they didn't know what he's talking about, and they just went on. They started watching the video, and it showed uh, – the superstars punishing Jimmy Golden at the end of their last match they had had with each other. And uh, Rob and Jimmy were trying to win the Southeastern Tag Championship belts back. They hadn't had them in four weeks, and these superstars were a really tough team to beat. So they kept putting the Boston Crab on Jimmy and taking turns tagging in and out. 
Then they started slamming Jimmy at the end of this match. I watched it, probably 10 slams in a row. And uh, each time they covered him, he would kick out just barely on the, before the count of three. Then they just kept it going. And uh, long enough that the crowd got involved because there was a special uh, part of this match. If Rob and Jimmy lost this match, they were going to get their head shaved right there in oh. the ring. So the crowd didn't want to see them lose their hair. And the crowd really got into it toward the end of this when they started slamming Jimmy and just basically punishing him. And Jimmy was just barely able to kick out again and again. The crowd got behind him. And out of nowhere, finally, Jimmy Small packages Dick Dunn, superstar number one. And wow, that place exploded. Uh, Rob and Jimmy won their championship. And they, they're watching the video at the set with Lesk. And then, then they... The, the video ran until they got the belts handed to them. And the audience in the studio, they reacted just about as well as the, and as loud as the crowd did in the arena that night. And there was about 4,000 of them in that arena that night because we were indoors. So left, left the set after that because Carson and the superstars coming back for the first interview. The announcer for the television and the announcer for the live matches in Knoxville was a guy named Phil Rainey. So Phil went in and took over the set whenever Carson and the superstars were going to be on it because Les wasn't going to handle it. So they came, they sat down, and uh, they asked him, first question from the superstars was, who are these two referees for this next Friday night? We want to get our belts back, by golly, and we want to know who's refereeing. And Phil said, they're not going to announce the referees until match time. They were upset about it, but they didn't seem too upset. Because they seemed really confident that they're going to win anyway. It didn't make any difference who the referees were. And then Carson obviously tore into me, taking a shot at me. And and the Southeastern, the title, chance to get his championship. He called his championship back. And he bragged about his victory, obviously. And the two out of three fall, the first ever perfect match from the Friday night before he beat Dick Steinborn. And then he also noticed, you know, that Steinborn wasn't there that day, you know. And he brought that up. And he said, not only that, but he's not on the card next Friday night because I heard him because we had that no DQ part of that two out of three falls. And uh, I hit him with my peanut butter twice during that match. And he's not able to wrestle here anymore. In fact, he said, I think I've run him off from Southeastern, which wasn't the case. Steinborn's going to be back. But, uh, you know, he said, basically, he's going to do the same thing to me. He's going to run me off because of this match that we're about to have the following Friday is a no DQ and a no time limit match. So it gives him opportunity to use his peanut butter. And that, uh, you know, he thought was all he needed. And uh, the three of them, they laughed at the end of the interview and they left the set. Second TV match was a big guy, 300-pounder named Don Lambert. And he was against Butch Malone, another big boy, almost 300 pounds. Uh, The fans loved this one because Malone did just about everything to this big old 300-pound Lambert. I mean, all kinds of different bumps and suplexes and everything else. And then he threw him over his shoulder like he was a baby. And he ran halfway across the ring and slammed him upside down into the turnbuckles, then turned around and ran across the ring and dived in the air and landed on top of him. The old Oklahoma stampede, but it was a devastating stampede. It might have been even better than Bill Watts' stampede that he was famous for. So Malone went back to the set, uh, and he joined Ron Wright who had, they had been partners the Friday before, and they watched the video from the night before on that Friday. It started with Tanaka uh, in a match with Ron Wright's brother, Don Wright, and it showed Don Wright bleeding really badly. Tanaka had really pounded him good. And then it showed Ron coming down to the ring to save his brother. Then Homer got involved. And after that, Malone came down to the ring. Then Norvell came down. Uh, so basically, it was just a really wild event. Malone had an opportunity to get alone in the ring with Homer at one point there, and the crowd really exploded there. They thought they were going to see it. It didn't happen. But he was going to get it the very next Friday night. He's going to get that shot. So let's do it to commercial break. And both guys stayed at the set. And after the commercial, both of them uh, got the opportunity to talk about what they were going to do the following Friday night. Uh, right? He talked about having his opportunity to be the first guy in Southeastern to beat Tanaka. Nobody had beat him. He had never had a loss yet in his time at Southeastern. And Malone thanked the Southeastern officials for making it a one-on-one match between him and Homer. 
And uh, he, he had a great line. He says, uh, you know, he says, I really appreciate the officials for allowing me to have this one-on-one match against Homer O'Smell. Not Odell, but he called him. He called him O'Smell. And he said, I promise to beat the smell out of him for you fans. <laughs> People like that one, too. Personality profile, it was with that young rising star, Mike Stallings. And Les did, an obviously, a great job, as he always did with personality profiles. He tried to keep it away from wrestling so much. He wanted to talk to him about other things. And he brought up the fact that Mike Stallings had a baseball contract and uh, had gotten an injury. that cost him the opportunity to maybe make it to the big time. But he had that baseball contract, and he can brag about that, that's for sure. And they also talked about the injury that he had gotten from Tarzan Baxter, the second superstar, three months earlier, where uh, he hurt his back. He hurt Stalling's back. And Les kind of asked him, you know, during the profile, he says, uh, Mike, uh, are you just kind of unlucky? You know, because he seemed like now he's hurting baseball and he's hurting wrestling. And uh, Stalling's had a great answer. And he said something to the effect of, you know, he felt uh, he was very lucky to be around some of the best wrestling fans in the world and in the best wrestling territory in the world, Southeastern wrestling. Well, obviously, the fans really loved that. And they let him know it. They cheered. This one was done live. They were right there. They could see it live right in the next studio. And Stallings was just a humble kid, a young guy and a polite. You, and you couldn't have pictured Stallings as being a wrestler. If you didn't know he was a wrestler, you would have never thought that guy was a wrestler. But, boy, he had plenty of fire in the ring when it came time. He was destined to be good. He's going to work for me not only in Knoxville. He's going to go to Pensacola when that company opens up. The next TV match really surprised the Southeastern fans, something they hadn't expected for sure. Rocky Smith, the former Inferno, who was a babyface and uh, worked on a lot of TV matches, hadn't won a lot of TV matches, but was still a great wrestler. Uh, He was introduced, and uh, the fans really liked him because he did have great wrestling ability. And then uh, the surprise came for everybody. Around the corner comes Homer dressed in wrestling tights, and he's followed by Tanaka and Austin. Instead of him coming up in the rear, he's actually leading the boys. And the fans welcomed that with a resounding bunch of boos, obviously. He entered the ring, bouncing around like he was a boxer, man. He was like he looked like he was 150 pounds. And uh, when Rainey announced him, he got an even bigger roar of boos when he got announced. And Tanaka and Norvell, they stayed at ringside. They wanted to be there for him. So the bell rang, and Rocky Smith, he gave Homer a true wrestling lesson. It was beautiful. He started out the match. We just made a real quick leg dive and takedown on big old fat Homer, and he shot in behind him. And then when Homer got up on his hands and knees, uh, <laughs> a big old, old Rocky just got on his back and spun around on him like a top, man, making a fool out of him. And Homer finally crawled over to the ropes, and the referee had to break the hold because he was in the ropes. And Homer <laughs> crawled out of the ring. He was already exhausted. He'd done nothing. And the studio crowd was even laughing and making fun of him. So Tanaka and Austin, they, they went over and they talked to him. And, uh, you know, and I guess they were trying to offer him some advice. And uh, so anyway, he goes back in the ring. And when he goes back in, he locks up this time with Rocky. And Rocky ducked under his arm and he held onto that arm and he ended up with a hammerlock behind Homer. And he just let the arm go, dropped down on his knees, and he jerked both of Homer's feet out from under him. And Homer landed on his face. <laughs> Crowd popped again. They were loving this, man. Homer was really looking lousy, uh, you know, and uh, <laughs> Homer rolled out onto the floor this time when he got away. And he was so blown up that Norvell ran over and found a chair in the corner of the studio and brought it and put Homer in the chair and took a towel and was waving him. And, uh, and Tanaka got up on the apron and kept the referee from counting him out. And But the crowd was just really, really enjoying it. So. Homer rolled back in finally, and uh, Rocky jerked him right up on his feet, and he fired him into the ropes, and when he came off, he caught him in the in the stomach, in the big fat belly. Homer had a big fat belly uh, with a big knee. <laughs> and, uh, Homer bellowed like a cow, man, <laughs> and then he collapsed face first uh, with his body hanging over the second rope, and Nobel jumped on the apron on the opposite side of the ring, drew the referee over there, obviously. And Rocky was just about to grab Homer when Tanaka jumped up on the apron where they were 
and he nailed Rocky with a shot to the back of the head. He hit him with a chop, and Rocky went down hard. Now, Tanaka got off the apron uh, before the referee saw him, and then Homer took over, man. He choked uh, Rocky as hard as much as he could, and he got up and stomped him right square in the face uh, and his, busted his Rocky's nose, and he began to bleed from the nose. And Homer threw him out of the ring where his boys were. And then Homer drew the referee, the opposite side of the ring, and Austin full Nelson Rocky out there on the floor, and Tanaka chopped him in the face. This time, it was really bleeding. Uh, he threw him back in the ring, and Homer covered him and got the win. It was about a five-minute match, but gosh, and the fans laughed at the first four minutes of it, but what tremendous heat it had in the fifth minute. I mean, they were really, really upset by the finish of the match. The three of those guys went directly to the set. Les gave Homer no credit for the victory, as, as Homer didn't deserve any, and, and he also he called it ridiculous. He said, that's just a ridiculous way to win, Homer, you know. And Homer didn't care. He told Les to shut up. <laughs> I said, and he pointed out to the crowd, and he says, you know, these hillbillies in the audience here, he said, they're all freeloaders. They don't even pay to come in here to the studio. And he goes, why would I want to show them my best moves here? You know, he says, on Friday night, when I get my match here with Malone, that's when people are paying and buying tickets. That's when I'm going to show them what I can do. So good excuse for the fact he couldn't do anything. <laughs> so he promised that Ron Wright's match with his boy Tanaka was just going to be the finish of Ron Wright for good. And he wasn't going to have to worry about any more matches against Ron Wright in any fashion whatsoever. And the fans were just going crazy listening to all this. And, and they just kept getting madder as, as he continued on. And by the time they left, the crowd was just round. They'd had enough. They were disgusted with it. Last match was the Surprise Southeastern Championship match on television. And I like to do this every once in a while as a promoter. And uh, I, I like to give the fans something unexpected and, and not announce it on TV in advance sometimes. You know, I felt like that it did two things. It, it made them appreciate it. And it also encouraged them never to miss a show because they didn't know when they might miss some type of championship match on television. So that's what we did here in this case. Uh, I just show up into the studio, Bill Dundee's in the ring, and I show up with a championship belt on, and Phil Rainey announces that this is a Southeastern Championship match on television. And I was taking my belt off, and Dundee jumped me from behind. And for about five minutes, he was on top. He really, really took care of business. Got a couple of near pins, and the crowd was really into the match. And then uh, finally he got uh, a little bit too fancy and he slammed me and he went up the top rope. He looked like he was going to try to jump in my throat and I moved out of the way. I was able to make a comeback on him and I put the fuller leg lock on him. Uh, after the ref had raised my hand, I took my belt and I met Robert and Jimmy and they had their tag team belts on. We all went to the set with Les and the fans cheered through this entire interview with Robert and Jimmy and I and uh, they asked about the. Uh, Superstars, Jimmy and Rob. The same question to Les that uh, had been asked by the superstars of Phil Rainey. They said, who are these two referees next Friday? And Les says, uh, we're not going to be able to tell you. They they want to keep it a secret until the match starts the next Friday night. So I didn't care. In my case, I'm, I got to Car- Carson. I'm defending against Carson. I didn't give a damn who the referee was. You know, I was just <laughs> looking forward to having the match. It was a great program, and I think people really enjoyed that one. Hey, Ron, this seems like a good place for a break. When we return, after a few words, we're going to be talking about the Super Studcast number 28, part one that we talked about earlier with Jacques Rougeau, one of the best ever, and that's coming up, and we'll be right back. The Stud does his Super Studcast with wrestlers from all over the world and wrestlers who wrestle all over the world. The last Super Studcast featured two of the all-time best tag team professional wrestlers and amateur wrestlers as well from the great state of Oklahoma, the Shooting Briscoe Brothers. This time, he takes it north of the border into Canada to discover the members of one of that country's most famous wrestling families, the Rougeos, at tnstud.com or patreon.com. 
Facebook.com slash studcast. On the last Super Studcast, it was Jerry Briscoe telling the story. But this time, Jacques Rougeau reveals the fantastic history of his family in this remarkable journey. Jacques won his first major championship in Southeastern wrestling and with his brother formed one of the WWF's greatest tag teams, the Fabulous Rougeaus. It takes a full three hours to cover this family's 75 years of wrestling history. At TNStud.com or Patreon.com slash Studcast, only $2.99. The Stud has produced another classic with Super Studcast number 28. Saddle up for some real Canadian history. Hey, we're back on another Studcast, and where to now, Ron? Let's get the results of that Friday card of April 16th. So Mike Stallings and Norvell Austin are in the first match, as I talked about earlier in the show. And darn, what a tremendous match they had. Austin was great. He was one of the best little heels in in America, in my opinion. And Mike Stallings was becoming a star at this point. They wrestled to a 20-minute time limit draw. Fantastic match. Great way to open the evening. And I always thought that first match was so important because it kind of set the tone for the whole night. And this one I knew was going to set the tone. I knew we were going to have a big night after an opening match like that. Tor Tanaka continued his winning ways. And uh, he got a little help from Homer, had to, to get to beat Ron Wright. You know, and uh, Tanaka discontinued his undefeated streak while he was there. Tanaka came to the ring to help the Homer. Uh, Ron Wright came to help Malone in Malone's match. Malone had that opportunity at Homer that he had been waiting for, that single match, and end up, obviously, Tanaka's got to help Homer. And that was obvious by watching a little bit of match. He had the short match on TV that he's going to need help, and he did. He showed up to help Homer, got Malone down. Ron Wright came down to help Malone, and then Austin showed up and saved both Tanaka and Homer. Uh, it was a wild little deal. Turned out to be supposed to be two guys. It turned out to be five of them in there. And uh, a wild little session. Uh, Carson and I had a long match. And it was a no DQ, no time limit. But this one got stopped uh, because we both got counted out. And we were in the amphitheater this night. Uh, The amphitheater had a platform in which probably 600 people could sit in ringside area. And then there was a drop-off of about six to eight feet. And a concrete down there on the bottom of that drop-off and that was right in front of the huge grandstand that probably held 5,000 people at least, I would say. So we had fought off of the platform where the ringsiders were down onto the to this trench, let's call it, I guess is a good word for it, that was in front of the grandstand, the General Mission grandstand. And we got counted out, both of us. And that was basically the end of the match. Title didn't change. I kept the title. And obviously, Carson wasn't happy with the fact that that he didn't get his hands on it. So now the final match of the evening is this Southeastern Tag Championship match with Robert and Jimmy defending against the superstars. And there's two special referees. So Phil Rainey is the announcer, uh, like I said, not only on television, but at the matches in Knoxville itself. And so he comes to the ring. uh, The four contestants are in the ring. And he makes an announcement that uh, one of the special referees for the night was sick and wasn't going to be able to be there. Then, uh, you know, no one was prepared for who, who the referee was. But as, you know, then uh, he said, but ladies and gentlemen, the crowd went solid. You know, he said, the, the other referee is here and, uh, and I want to bring him out now. Your special referee for tonight's championship tag match is none other than Less stature. So the superstars were like, whoa, wait a minute. And Don Carson came running down to the ring like, what are you guys doing here? You know, so needless to say, Rob and Jimmy retained their titles that night. They didn't have too hard a time doing that. Les got a little dig into the guys that had been taking over his program for weeks. He got it back a little bit that night. So that wasn't a bad little deal for the crowd. Oh, no doubt. That is crazy good stuff, Ryan. What was the crowd like that night? It was a it was a good crowd. It was good weather. We're in the middle of April at this point. It was probably uh, in the 60s, you know, a little cool, but not summertime yet when you're up there in Tennessee, especially when you're in the mountains. 
So we had 5,000, close to 5,000 fans again. Uh, and uh, the other five cities we ran that week, we did 9,000 uh, in those five cities. And so it was about 14,000 total fans for the week, close to another record. I think the record was at this point almost 15,000 for a week. The gross for the week was uh, just under about $40,000. And each of the 15 guys in the crew that kind of made all these matches, those six nights for that week, they each averaged about $700 a week. Some guys now, when I say 700, not everybody made 700. Some guys made 400, 500. Some guys made 900. But, uh, that 700 average would have equaled about $3,000 a week in today's money. Uh, so not a bad week for the guys. We've got a real run going here. Southeastern has kind of taken off, and the guys are making money every week, and word's getting around. It's a good thing for us. Uh, I mean, we're, we're beginning to get a good reputation around the rest of the country and the rest of the world. Yeah, wow. The guys had to be loving you making that kind of money. You mentioned earlier in the show that you were going to talk about getting Southeastern on another TV station. What's the deal with that? Okay, so let's talk about the TV station. Uh, The TV station actually is in Hazard, Kentucky, which was 160 miles north of Knoxville. It's what was called the Eastern Kentucky Coalfields region because there's a lot of coal mining in that part of the country. And uh, that's the way they described it uh, as being the coalfield region. But first, before I get into actually going to the TV station, I'd like to set this up a little bit. I'd like to talk about uh, the different television uh, in 76 across the country as compared to what we have nowadays. Yeah, So, uh, you know, listeners uh, will better understand why I needed to get on a small TV doing it this way. They'll understand maybe better why I needed this small television station in the middle of nowhere in Kentucky. Uh, For the younger listeners out there, I'd like for them just to imagine what the world would be like without cable TV and having hundreds of channels to watch. We're going to back up here to 1976, and and can they imagine to being able to watch only three channels? That's what it was in the 70s, early 70s, is you had the three national networks. You had ABC, CBS, and NBC, and you had nobody else. You didn't have any other choices. Right. And yep. uh, all the older listeners out there, now, they'll know what I'm talking about. They're going to remember those days. So back in the 70s, before cable TV, television stations had to beam their signals out to the viewers. And uh, usually they did that from these towers that were usually located on mountains and the highest point they could put their tower. Because the higher the tower was, the stronger your signal was going to be and your television signal is going to reach further out. So most families, oddly enough, believe it or not, uh, you, for you younger listeners out there, the, the only way you could get television was put an antenna on the top of your house. <laughs> that, you know, when you talk about it today, it's archaic. You know what I mean? Like, well, are you kidding me? You know, you had to have an antenna to get TV. Well, back in the early 70s, that was what it was all about. So, and it was a different situation. You know, the country... From the beginning, when they when television was invented, they had to get a hold on who was going to be owning these television stations and how many television stations are there going to be. So the government, very early when television just started in the late 40s, the government got involved. They wanted to control the growth of that industry, and it was a, probably a good idea. So uh, there were only a limited number of TV stations licensed across the country, and each one was limited to a designated signal power for the area that they were going to have their station in. The country was divided basically into small little pieces, and each piece was assigned a certain number of TV stations in that area, Uh, usually only three stations, you know, because one for each of the networks. And like I said earlier, there were only three networks, ABC, CBS, and NBC. And so why have more than three stations? There was no programming. Nobody was making shows. For television, uh, these were just all coming from networks, these three networks. So each of the three stations in these small areas were assigned four call letters. Uh, and that was the, so that people could recognize which station you're talking about. Uh, these call letters, oddly enough, begin with the letter W 
if your TV station was east of the Mississippi River, and if your television station was you live west of the Mississippi River, they began with the letter K. So the TV station, just to give you an example, when I went to Knoxville, and I arrived there in 1974, it was on a channel called WTVK. In May of 75, uh, I moved southeastern over to a station called WBIR. The difference between these two stations is a pretty good example of what I'm talking about. WTVK's signal only went out about 40 miles from Knoxville, and WBIR's went out 150 miles. So the signal was everything. It meant everything. So, uh, you know, really big cities like New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, even back in the early days, they may have an extra station or two because it was so big. Uh, but the normal people everywhere in the country in the early 70s were getting those three television stations. So I kind of w- wanted to explain it this way uh, so that, uh, you know, I could set up why this little station in Hazard, Kentucky, had such meaning back in the 70s. It was a unique situation as far as television stations across the country, this one in Hazard. It's mm-hmm. set in an area where there was no television, the television signals. You were on the fringe of the television stations out of Lexington, Kentucky, that beamed their signal south, and Knoxville, Tennessee, that beamed their signals north, but they were in an area that wasn't getting much television at all because people couldn't get it with those antennas on the top of their houses. So this television station in Hazard, Kentucky, which was 160 miles north of Knoxville, Hazard only had about 5,000 people in town but they were still able to get a license for their television station. That television station, though, reached a hell of a lot more than 5,000 people because it had its own tower, and it was in that part of the country there kind of by itself. It was given a license because it was in that middle, that mountainous terrain, in the middle of the state, basically, and it was on the outer fringes of the big major station signals. So that left a substantial area of the state of Kentucky without proper access to television. So I know 5,000 people live in one city doesn't sound like many, but Southeastern was already drawing as many as 3,000 people in Harlan, Kentucky, every other Saturday night. And Harlan, Kentucky's population was only 3,000 people. I mean, we were basically drawing 3,000 people to wrestling when the population of the city was 3,000. They weren't all coming from Harlan, They were coming from all of these little valleys that that set down in the mountains, and people were coming from everywhere all around it. So how many could we draw in Hazard? That's what I thought. That was my question. If we can draw 3,000 people in Harlan, where they have a 3,000 population, what can we draw in Hazard, Kentucky? So I was already beginning to run a lot of smaller towns, Tennessee, Virginia, and Kentucky. I wasn't going to be able to continue to be successful in all of these small towns, if I had to go back there and wrestle too often. So I needed more small towns. And it would have eventually, uh, as the old saying goes, I would have killed the goose that laid the golden egg. Right. I I was getting good business. I I was doing well from these small towns. But if I go too often, I'm going to kill them. They're going to die off. People are not going to come. So Southeastern needed new cities for the territory to continue its growth. So this television station, WKYH was the name of it, 160 miles from Knoxville in the mountains in eastern Kentucky, was going not only to continue southeastern success, but it's going to add significantly to our success. And just one trip there. I only made one trip there uh, in one day. And I got in to see the people at the television station. I took a tape with me. Luckily, they had a two-inch machine. They put that tape up and they brought everybody that worked in the station. I mean, everyone, the salespeople, everybody, they watched the show and mouths were open around the table. They had never seen a wrestling show in their life like that. Wow. They were just like, wow, this is unbelievable, you know? So before I left there that day, I made a deal with them. I said, hey, I want eight minutes. I'll give you eight minutes to sell commercial time on. And they were in. They said, yes, sir. When when can we do it? So we started airing that show there in April of 1976. And ultimately, it spread Southeastern influence even further north into Kentucky. 
than where we had ever been able to go. Wherever that signal went and wherever that station got people to watch it, it made wrestling huge. I didn't care where they, what cities were. By midsummer of 1976, we began to bring live, bona fide, big-time wrestling to thousands of fans in Kentucky that had never seen anything like it. It was huge, big enough that, just as an example, we put this on in April. On Labor Day in 1976, Southeastern introduced Andre the Giant to Hazard, Kentucky. And uh, we ran in the largest building in that part of the country. We had more than 5,000 people in an arena that was made for 4,000. And we had 5,000 people outside that couldn't get in. It was just unbelievable what was going on up there with wrestling. Everyone on that card, as well as the management from the TV station, and all of them showed up. All the management of the television station showed up that night to see what happened. They were all blown away. And not only was the management of the TV station blown away, the boys in the dressing room were like, God, Ron, this is unbelievable, you know? So for me, as a young man and a business owner, it was gratifying, man, to see the faces of all those hardworking and those often overlooked people in that part of the country when Andre came through that entrance into the arena that night. I'll never forget it. It was electric. It was like, wow, those people had never seen anything like the matches they were going to see, much less to see Andre. It was just a remarkable event and uh, wonderful to be a part of it. I remember the first time I saw him and uh, as a, as a child, I was just absolutely stunned and speechless. So I can certainly imagine fascinating stuff right there, Ron. I think it's time for us to get that cold drink, lean back against the old learning tree for some wrestling education. What have you got today? Well, here we go. Today's learning tree is a question from someone from Twitter. And this person uh, calls himself the Smoky Mountain Negro. His question is two parts. He asked, were you ever worried about booking Norvell Austin as a heel in places like Harlan, Kentucky, and other towns down south? And what percentage of the audience in the southeastern Knoxville area was black? Great question. And and it's really odd. Uh, this question, I, I want to start way back. In fact, I, I want to answer the second part of that question first. And the second part of that question was, what percentage of the audience in southeastern in Knoxville was black. I'm going to give the listeners here a little ride before I answer this one. Uh, I'm going to take you back in history here a little bit, uh, way back, actually. Tennessee is a very unique state because of the percentage of population there that was black varied significantly from one side of the state of Tennessee to the other. Uh, Mm. That's strange. Uh, There's probably no state in the country that had this this situation where you had a lot of black people live on one side of the state and very few on the other. Uh, On the western side of the state, as an example, in Memphis, you had 40% of the population was black. And in the center of the state, as you moved eastward, that 40 dropped to 20% in Nashville. And by the time you got to the eastern side of the state in Knoxville, it was 10%. It was crazy. And also, uh, I'm sure, like uh, everybody out there, the first question the listeners out there are probably going to ask is, uh, why? Why was it that way? So I'm going to do my best to answer that. And to me, the answer has to do with farming, of all things, and the growth of cotton in particular. Hmm. So on the eastern side of the state, around Knoxville, it was some mountains there and a lot of small hills and valleys. And the soil was not good for farming. And it was difficult to farm up and down and up and down. Uh, you know, flat land is what people, farmers really got their best production from. And so as you move west toward Nashville, the countryside was a little bit less up and down. There were fewer hills, but the soil was still not very conducive to growing crops. It just wasn't a good place to farm. So and as you left Nashville driving in a car, and I used to notice this, heading to Memphis, the land began to flatten out. And it was really important that it flattened out because for thousands of years, the Mississippi River, being the monster river that it was, it overflowed its banks every year. And sometimes it would overflow its banks 100 miles away from the river. Then when that water receded, it left all that silt and that soil, that rich soil there. 
And this made the soil rich, obviously, and perfect for farming. One crop in particular, and you know, this region had some of the best cotton, and that crop was cotton. You know, and this part of the country had some of the best cotton growing land on earth. But sadly, back in the 1800s, that brought thousands of slaves to the western side of the state of Tennessee. To be able to grow that cotton required a lot of labor. And uh, before the Civil War, they started arriving. And, uh, you know, and the people that are there today are the descendants of all those people that came to grow that cotton way back in the 1800s. So let's take a little history lesson, uh, another step. Uh, The black Memphis wrestling fans, they got a unique shot in the arm in 1958. This is a tremendous little piece of story right here. In 1958, the black fans in Memphis got a shot in the arm uh, and that made better fans out of them than any other southern city in America. And I'm very proud to say that my family has a little small part in in this particular thing. Uh, My dad and my family, we moved from Mobile, Alabama, where my dad had built a great territory, the Gulf Coast Wrestling Territory, to Memphis, Tennessee in 1958. It was one of the worst wrestling cities in the country. The first night they ran, I went as a young boy. They didn't fill up two rows of ringside. They had less than 200 people in a city the size of Memphis. It was absolutely horrible. But Dad brought with him to this horrible wrestling city a guy that would put Memphis not only on the wrestling map, but it's going to make it one of the best wrestling cities in history. After this 1958 time frame and this guy comes there, Memphis is going to become a monster wrestling city forever, just about. This guy, he ignited a huge black audience in Memphis, and he turned thousands of blacks into wrestling fans. That wrestler's name was Sputnik Munro. Wow. And his legacy went far beyond just wrestling. He became a spokesman for integration long before any white man in the South. He had a profound effect on it. And he did because of this. Buildings everywhere across the southern United States at this point, the South was segregated. Blacks had to sit in a certain part of the building, and they could not sit in the areas where the whites sat. And it was uh, that way all across the southern United States. Blacks weren't allowed to sit with the whites. Sputnik became a monster star in Memphis, and he refused to let that happen in Memphis. He was such a powerful persona from being seen every week on the TV show that Dad made a fantastic place. Uh, You know, numbers were just unbelievable. People that loved wrestling, Uh, they were watching that show. Sputnik Monroe was the most powerful sauna on it during 58 and 59. And he single-handedly brought integration to Memphis way before any place in the South. He was so popular that he demanded blacks have the right to sit wherever they wanted in Memphis's public buildings or he refused to wrestle until they did. Wow. Now, that sounds crazy, right? You'd yeah. figure like the city's going to go, oh, are you kidding me? But he was so popular, uh, and wrestling was the biggest sport in the city that it forced the city of Memphis to desegregate their buildings. Wow. Uh, and, and they were the first city in the South to do it because of Sputnik Munro, because of a wrestler that says, if you don't let the blacks sit with the whites, I'm not going to wrestle anymore. To this day, Sputnik Monroe is recognized as one of the most important civil rights advocates of his time. And a great guy, grew up around him, a tremendous wrestler, but he's known for his wrestling, but he's just as popular. And he's more important in a way at what he did for desegregating the South than he was as a wrestler. So having worked in Memphis, get back to where we were and to answer the gentleman's question, about the crowds and the percentage of the black and how fearful I was, having worked in Memphis hundreds of times, it always seemed like me in Memphis, the crowd was half black. Even though it was 40% black in the city, 50% or more of the crowd was black. While in Knoxville, on the same side of the state, less than 10% of my crowds was black. So now we have, we know the percentage of blacks in the Knoxville area. Uh, so they were small in number, obviously, compared to Memphis. They never had a Sputnik run row. I didn't have a Sputnik to ignite them. 
I used a lot of great black wrestlers in southeastern Knoxville. Novell Austin was one of the first I brought there. And he was also one of the best, to be honest with you. The percentage of blacks at the matches in the early southeastern days was probably less than 5%. And that was in Knoxville. Once you got into Kentucky, it was 0%. You didn't see any. You didn't see any at all. Because one reason is that blacks weren't coal miners. They didn't do that. They just weren't in that part of the country, and they and they didn't want to do it. And so, you know, there were no blacks, very few blacks in Kentucky and very few blacks on the eastern side of Tennessee. So I was scared. And I want to answer this gentleman's question. I was scared for Norvell Austin every night. And, and I talked about that fear in the last studcast that we did. I was pretty plain about how scared I was about what was going on and that these crazy towns, uh, you know, that where people had never seen wrestling before, it was extremely dangerous. But it wasn't just because Novell was black, you know. It, it was because he was a heel in a very dangerous part of the country where anything could happen. Didn't make any difference. All the heels, everyone in the crews back in the 70s, whether they were black or white, they all had that problem to deal with. Or am I going to get stabbed with a knife? Or I'm going to get hit in the head with a chair? Or is somebody going to burn my car during the matches? I mean. It was really, really a dangerous, tough situation. So when I sold Southeastern Knoxville and I left to join my, my partners in Southeastern Pensacola, I was going to a part of the country that had a much larger black population. Once you got into Alabama and you got into the panhandle of Florida and down in Louisiana and Mississippi, you had a lot of blacks. And again, Norville is going to be one of my stars there, one of my great black wrestlers. I took him with me. When we went there in 1978, 1980, 82, he was there in the crew. Yeah. Yeah. And I worried about him. I worried about Norvell and all the heels in Harlan. I worried about the heels in Harlan and Hazard and Bluefield, West Virginia, and in Knoxville itself. It didn't make any difference whether they're black or white. I did my best, obviously, to protect them with the best security I could find or buy. And in a lot of cases, I bought it. In the Mongolian Stompers case, he made me hire someone to travel with him into uh, Kentucky and into Virginia and all these towns outside Knoxville just to watch his back. <laughs> I couldn't get him to wrestle without it. So I was paying security for one guy, and he wasn't black. So every heel, black or white, they knew the danger. But the thing was, they all loved the sport more than they feared the fans. It was pretty simple. They love what they did more than they were scared about you had something bad happening to them with the fans. So uh, I'd like to thank the gentleman for his question today, obviously. And uh, I guess I'd probably sum all this up in, in one way. Through all my wrestling experiences, I found that fans didn't hate heels because of their color, but because of their ability to get heat in the ring and on the microphone. It didn't make any difference with the color. It wasn't about color. It was about how good you were at being a heel. Wow. Another amazing, incredible story from the Tennessee stud. You can find Ron on Facebook, his second Facebook page at Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud, and you'll automatically become friends with a legend at Twitter. Find and follow him on Twitter at Ron Fuller Welch. Super Studcast number 28 part one is now available. Don't miss this one. Jacques Rougeau and Ron have one of the best conversations ever between two friends from two different countries. Part two will also be Jacques live with more great stories on Tuesday, April 28th. So where are we headed next week, Ron? Well, we're going to shake things up a lot more on next week's Knoxville card. Uh, when Robert and Jimmy, they're going to be defending the Southeastern belts this time in the next uh, week on the Friday night against the superstars mask. If they get beat, they're going to have to give the belts to the superstars and the superstars lose. They're going to have to take their mask off. And uh, believe me, this one is going to have a very, very different outcome than most of the fans expected. And uh, we're going to talk about some tremendous new wrestlers coming to the Southeastern in the summer, 1976. Uh, next week's learning tree is, I think, a, a pretty special one. Uh, we're going to talk about some of the biggest names in the sport 
based upon this gentleman's question next week. And the question is, will you compare promoter style, Sam Munchik to Nick Goulas, Fern Gagne to Leroy McGurk, Eddie Graham to Vince McMahon Sr., and how difficult was it for wrestlers to adjust when moving from one of these territories to another? That would be a great one. Looking forward to it. And one more thing before we close this one out today, Dave, uh, I want to let fans know that I'm going to be running post on Saturday, April the 18th and Sunday, April the 19th on both of my Facebook sites and on Twitter, uh, where if you want to leave questions again for Learning Tree, I've got uh, questions, but uh, I've got so many people that are asking me, where can I leave questions? I'm going to open this up. I'm going to run posts on Saturday the 18th, Sunday the 19th, and on Twitter. And you can leave your learning tweet questions there. And uh, please just take a look at those posts if you want to leave a question. It's as simple as that. And before we go, uh, I want to thank everybody, obviously, for riding with me today. And uh, may God bless us all. Another amazing job, Ron. This is David Summers thanking you for joining us today and reminding you Ron Fuller's Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains. 